We uh, take a moment to thank uh, the team that's led us this week in worship, uh, Clint and all the uh, band members and singers. Can we give them a round of applause and just... Uh, I, I want to take a moment uh, or last night and just uh, thank again uh, Matt and the elders uh, for the invitation to be out here. Uh, just so encouraging, encouraging to see what God uh, is doing, has been doing, and I trust will continue to do uh, at this church in this city. And uh, I pray that in small, some very small way, um, I, I'm, I'm helping to fan into flame um, the work that he's called you to do here, just to equip you uh, a little bit more, uh, just to encourage you a little bit more to cheerlead you on for this work. Um, I, I pray it's been a good night or a good week for you, and this, this will be a good night to add to that. Uh, the, the previous nights, I want to recap them real quick um, before we move into what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, we're looking at this idea of life on mission. And the first night we actually talked about what is the mission. And the mission is to um, open eyes, right? We want to open eyes. It is God ultimately who opens eyes. But then he also calls his church to join him to open eyes. Um, we see that, that, that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, but that the God who said, let there be light, shines light into their hearts to give them eyes to see. And the church is called to join God in that mission. As, as Jesus said to Paul, I'm sending you out to open their eyes, to open their eyes, to, to turn them away from darkness to light and from Satan to God and uh, to, to experience forgiveness of sins and a place among the people of God. And, and that's the mission of the church. We join God in the mission of opening eyes. And then last night we talked about the message. So first night was the, the mission. Last night was the message. We talked about how um, the local church is the hope of the world and the way that we bring that hope to the world is the message that we carry. And that message that we carry is a message of a righteousness from God that comes by faith. A forgiveness of sin that comes because of the cross, but a righteousness that is given to us. Uh, the, the, the theological term is imputed to us, given freely, not earned, not deserved, nothing that we do to earn it, but it's given by God. We come to the cross and our sin is on Christ and we come to the cross and his righteousness is on us. And that's the gospel. We, we are eager for a city of people who do not understand the gospel who think they do, right? Who think because granddad was a deacon or they said Lord's Prayer before football games or um, because they went to VBS as a kid, they understand the message that the church carries. And what I have often found in conversations is that many do not. Um, we, we assume knowledge of the gospel when in reality, many do not have an understanding of what this good news really is. And so last night was about the message that we carried. Tonight is about the messenger, the messenger. What is it that we are called to do um, on mission and with this message? We are called to go be faithful messengers. Um, I was driving up until last year, a 2004 Focus. I'm not proud of it, um, but it was mine. And, um, and I told you about, you know, earlier in the week, I told you about uh, walking past it on the way to get it. Um, and that, that was a whole other story. If you missed, it's online. But um, I was driving a 2000 Ford Focus, and half the time the radio didn't work, but sometimes it did. And when it did, I would listen to, like, classic rock, right? I like classic rock, and I like a lot of stuff, but it would kind of stay on that channel. And um, I remember I met my wife uh, at a Mexican restaurant in Mountain Juliet, and she was coming in a separate car. My kids were with her, and I was driving, you know, my 
2004 Focus. And uh, we get there, and usually I take my kids to school in the morning, and when I say, okay, kids, I'm, I'm taking you to school, they ask me, like, um, what car are we taking? Um, right? Because they're at that age where it's like, do we have to be seen in this? And and I'm like, yeah, we're taking my car, and you're going to love it. Um, and so we jump in the car and go. So usually they're embarrassed to ride with dad. So they'll ride with mom. And so when we finish eating the Mexican restaurant on that evening, my son goes, Dad, can I ride with you? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you can ride with me um, because I'm so cool like that. I was like, I'm in the focus, though. Is that all right? And he's like, yeah, that's fine, Dad. So I'm thinking, all right. Yeah, your son wants to hang out with me. So we're driving home, and, of course, I got the classic rock on, and we're listening and talking, and, and we get into the driveway, and I cut the car off, and my son says so seriously, he's like, Dad? I was like, yeah, bud. Right? I'm thinking like one of these big life conversations are about to unfold out of nowhere. Um, Dad? He's like, yeah. He says, the reason we listen to old music in your car is because your car's old. I'm like, what? He's like, you know, because like your car's old, it only like plays old music. Like, no, that's not how it works, dude. It doesn't work like that. Like, you know, he he thought that because my, I guess he figured like the radio was installed and whatever year it got installed, that's, that's the latest music you got, right? You don't have anything. It's funny because that doesn't make sense to us, but when I tried to explain, like, no, son, see, here's how it works. See, that, that little thing called an antenna there is picking up these signals in the air. And, and, and the more I talked about it, I was like, you know what? Your, your idea makes more sense, actually, you know? But, but here's the thing. He was ignorant as to how it worked. He didn't understand how the radio worked. He just thought, you know, whatever year your car got installed, that's your radio system. That's what you got. And that's not how it works. And, and, and here's the deal. It was a lack of knowledge. It was a lack of knowledge. We have a world today that is operating with a lack of knowledge. There, there is a word for that. It's ignorance. Ignorance is often used derogatory, but it's really not a derogatory word. It just means to be without knowledge. And many are ignorant today about what the gospel is. They're ignorant about what Jesus has really done and what that means for them. They're, they're walking around clueless as to what we're talking about. And and there's a problem because see, godlessness is the result of ignorance. People running around here living ungodly lives are not doing so because they're such bad people and we're so much better people. It's ignorance. Ignorance drives godlessness because if you don't know who God really is, you will not live for him. In fact, you show me somebody who's not living for God and I'll show you somebody who does not see him rightly. If you have a true picture of who God is, you want to live for him. You want to lay your life down for him. You want to give all to follow him and to be in obedience to him and to give your life over to his will for the sake of his glory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you show me people not living like that, I will show you people who are ignorant and do not have true knowledge of God. And this is dangerous because listen to what God's word says about this. Hosea 4, 6 says it like this. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Why is it that they go astray? Why is it that they are sent into exile? Lack of knowledge. Why do they keep getting themselves in bondage and entangling themselves in sins? Lack of knowledge. Isaiah says it very similarly. Isaiah 5.13. Isaiah says, therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. 
A lack of knowledge is what gets people living lives outside the will of God. They don't know God rightly. They don't understand who he is. They don't see his radiance, his beauty, his glory, his splendor. And they do not live for him because they do not understand what he desires of them. They don't understand why they should even trust the wisdom of God in order to live for him. It's a lack of knowledge. Godlessness is the result of ignorance. So what are messengers called to do? Messengers are called to go and proclaim good news, which gives what? Knowledge. We are called to go and proclaim the message we talked about last night to alleviate the ignorance and lack of knowledge in the world. That lack of knowledge is what leads to godlessness in this life. We have a calling to be witnesses and messengers. In fact, we know this from the New Testament. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Paul, in this very famous passage, we're probably familiar with it somewhat. Verses 13 through 16. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's stop there. That's good news. Wait. Uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say everyone who never made a mistake will be saved. It, it doesn't say everyone who always got it right will be saved. It says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who submits their trust to the Lord, who believes upon the Lord, who calls out to the Lord, they will be saved. And we go, whew, that's good news. But now what, watch what Paul does. In light of that head-shaking knowledge, yes, that is good news. Yes, that is true. Now watch what he does. He flips the questions to us. How then, then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they call out for somebody whom they've not believed in? This is a question. Here's the second question. How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? Here's a third question. How are they to hear without someone preaching. And they don't mean just doing what I'm doing right now, proclaiming, exhorting, speaking. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? That's the fourth question. Notice that all of them are logically setting up an argument. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's great, but guess what? Who's gonna be saved in somebody they haven't believed in? Oh, and by the way, how are they going to believe in somebody in whom they've never heard? And how would they ever hear unless someone opens their mouth? And why would anyone open their mouth unless they're sent? And then he says this, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. For they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Here's the key phrase. So faith comes from what? In hearing through the word of Christ. Faith that saves, faith that eliminates ignorance, right? Faith that eliminates the, the, the gulf that separates men and God. Faith that eliminates the record of debt that stands against us. That kind of faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, hearing the gospel. We are called to be messengers who go out and proclaim this good news so that people can hear so that people can believe, so that people can be saved. That's the role of the messenger. We have this calling. Matthew 28, 18 tells us, Jesus speaking says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 8 says, and the Spirit will come upon you and you will see power. You will be my witnesses 
from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission tells us that we're going to be messengers. Paul, go ahead and just further deepens it into our heart to say they're not going to just come to faith by osmosis. They won't just poof and wake up believers. They won't poof have knowledge of the gospel. They won't be able to put a Bible on their head as they sleep at night and for it to seep in to give knowledge. They must hear. And hearing comes from the mouth of messengers. And friends, can I just say this? It comes from more than the mouth of just a pastor. It must come from the mouth of those who have also heard it. And here's what, here's what happens. We hear this and we go, I don't, I don't think I can do I don't think I can do that. I'm not, I'm not extroverted. I don't know enough. Like, what if I'm asked questions I don't have answers to? And here's what I want to do tonight. Here's, here's my prayer. Here's the direction we're going to take. You don't have to be seminary trained. You don't have to have the Bible memorized. You don't have to know where every passage is. You don't have to be able to answer every question. You don't even have to be able to be a great communicator. Here's what I'm going to encourage you with tonight. You need to be able to tell the story of what Jesus has done for you. And here's why. Because God uses simple testimony to generate powerful results. God uses simple testimony to generate powerful results. And so I want to show you two passages tonight that I recently taught at the Journey in Lebanon a few months ago that really just rocked my world when I when I made this connection, and just show me the power of testimony. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to two places, Matthew chapter 8 and John chapter 4. I want to show you two passages tonight and help make a connection to show you the power of testimony, the power of sharing your experience with Jesus. Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to begin there. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, and we'll go through verse 10. Let me read it, and then we'll circle back and take a peek at some of the things happening. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. When he, he is Jesus, entered into Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to this servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, this is an interesting story because this is a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion was an officer in the military of the most powerful nation in the world, the Roman Empire. They, they had, they owned and took ownership and had control of all the ancient world. The Roman Empire were the big dogs. They were the ones who had won battles. They had overcome the Greeks and, and they, were, they were in control. And they had control over Israel as well. And so in this town of Capernaum, which is in northern Israel, it's, it's in Galilee, it's a city on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. There's about 1,500 people in this little community. And here is this Roman centurion in the town, and when he hears Jesus has come into town, he goes to him. Now, Capernaum is a really interesting city 
in terms of the gospel because Capernaum was uh, like the headquarters for Jesus' ministry. Um, he had disciples who were from Capernaum, Peter and his brother. Uh, remember the story where uh, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law? That's in Capernaum. Um, Jesus would be in Capernaum, and then what he would do is they would travel most of Galilee, hitting towns and villages and cities. He would preach the gospel. He would demonstrate the kingdom through signs and wonders and heal and, and, and cure disease and um, you know, multiply food and bread and et cetera, et cetera. And what would happen is he would stay and lay his head on the ground at night, wherever he was. It wasn't like you jump in your car and you, you, know, you head a few cities over and you come back when you're done. If you, if you left outside of walking distance, you stayed where you were, okay? And, and so he would always make his way back to Capernaum ultimately, but he would travel around and stay and he would kind of do the itinerant thing. This is why he would say in another passage that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He would travel and sleep, but Capernaum was, was headquarters. He would go down to Jerusalem and do ministry. And of course, going down there was a far trip, so he would stay. And, but when he came back up, he would come back to Capernaum. So Capernaum was a very key city in Jesus' ministry. Capernaum was the place where his disciples came from, and, but it was also an influential town in terms of this is where ideas would be exchanged. This was a port city uh, on the Sea of Galilee, a fishing community. And Jesus shows up, and this Roman centurion comes to him. And he says, I've got a servant lying home paralyzed and suffering terribly. And Jesus makes this offer to him. I will come and heal him. And the man, rather than being like, thank you, let's go. House is this way. He goes, no, 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 no. You don't have to come. I'm not worthy to have you come. Just say the word. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And then he goes on to explain that he understands authority. He has authority, and people do what he says. And he understands Jesus has an authority that if he speaks it, it will be. And Jesus makes this statement. We should lean in when we hear this. I have not seen a faith like this in all of Israel. Roman centurion is a pagan. He is a Gentile. And he is demonstrating a faith that Jesus says, I have not seen Anywhere. By the way, Jesus is somewhere between 12 and 18 months into his three-year ministry before the cross. He's halfway through his ministry. So has Jesus seen faith demonstrated throughout Israel or at least had an opportunity to see faith? You bet he has. And he says this one has shown more faith than anyone else that he has seen. Now, we just established a moment ago that faith comes by hearing. So here's my question. Where in the world did this Roman centurion get this faith? Where did he get this faith? Do you think he just always randomly came up to people entering into town saying, hey, you think you could come heal my servant? No, he had heard. He had heard something, hadn't he? He had heard something that led him to go to Jesus and ask him to come or ask him to heal his servant. My question is, where did he hear? Where did it come from? How can we account for a faith that Jesus has not seen demonstrated? Flip over to John chapter four. And in John chapter four, we are about a year prior to the scene we just read. We're about six months into Jesus's ministry, early. The centurion has not come to Jesus at this point in time. And I want you to see this story and to hear what happens. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46 through 53. 
So he came again to Cana, he being Jesus. He came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water one. And at Capernaum, notice Capernaum, at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, from Judea, southern Israel, when he heard that he had come from Judea all the way back up into Galilee, and he heard that he was in Capernaum, he went to him and asked for him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus had been down in Judea, and he had already previously turned water into wine in this town of Cana. And when this man hears that Jesus is no longer in southern Israel and he has come up to Galilee and he is now in Cana, which is in distance from him, he wants to go find Jesus and tell him about his son who is at home about to die. This man has a son at home at the point of death. So this is serious business. So he comes and to Capernaum, uh, goes to, I'm sorry, Cana, where this man is, I'm sorry, let me back up. Jesus is in Cana, this man is in Capernaum. This man goes and he says to him, will you heal my son? And Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, please come down before my child dies. Please, please come with me to Capernaum before my son dies. They're in Cana. This man has made the trip to, to Cana to say, can you come to Capernaum with me? My son is about to die. Would you please? And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. He didn't go with him. He didn't make a trip to Capernaum. He stayed in Cana, and he simply said, go, your son will live. Now, if you're this man... Are you like, cool, thanks, and you head back to Capernaum thinking, well, it's going to be good. I mean, what would your response be if Jesus was like, no, I'm going to stay here, but go, your son's going to be okay. When you left, your son was at the point of death, fever. There's no Tylenol. There's no ibuprofen. There's no Motrin to bring it down. There's no doctors can just come in and give you fluids real quick and get you up to speed. Son's about to die. And you went hoping you could get the one you've heard has done miracles to come back with you. And he just says, go, your son will be okay. And you're having to trust him. You're having to believe. Watch what it says. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He believed. And as he was going down, back down to Capernaum, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. I'm imagining, by the way, that little meeting in the street wasn't like, hey, I think your son's getting better. I imagine he saw them coming and his first thought was, oh boy, what's the news? Because he's been gone a couple of days. What are they coming to tell me? But I'm assuming the body language of the men gave way to the message pretty quickly. The son is recovering. He is healing. They say, they say, your son is recovering. And the man asked them what hour he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. 
And the father knew that was the hour Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. So this city official in Capernaum, by the way, this is an important person in Capernaum, an official in a town of 1,500. He's got a son near death. He hears Jesus is in Cana, a day's travel, and he goes. He says, Jesus, will you come with me? And Jesus goes, your son will live, go. And the man believes it, and he goes home. And as he's on his way, his servants meet him and say, your son's getting better, he's recovering, he's healing, his fever's gone. And the man goes, when, 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 when? Tell me what happened. When did the fever leave? When did he start to get better? And they say, oh, about this time. And he goes, that's when he told me my son would be better. And it says he believed in all of his household. By the way, why do you think all of his household believed? Because he told them. He bore witness to what he had experienced. They believed in all of his household. This happened six to 12 months into Jesus's ministry. Fast forward the clock 12 to 18 months, or 12 months later, and Jesus arrives in the town of Capernaum. About a year after this miraculous thing has happened to the city official's son, and the Roman centurion hears that the man responsible was in town. And he goes to him and he says, I have a son, I have a servant paralyzed and suffering. And Jesus goes, I'll come and heal him. I'll come and heal him. I'll join you. And the man goes, no, 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 no. Just say the word. Why did Jesus say he hasn't seen a faith like this in all of Israel? Because the man heard about what had happened to the city official's son, and he believed. He believed And what did he do when he had a chance to act on that belief? He said, no, 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 you don't have to come. You just say it because I've already heard what you can do. And Jesus goes, I have not seen a faith like this in all of Israel. Stop and think about this. A city official in a town of 1,500 son is about to die, and all of a sudden, he's healed. Do you think it's possible that he would have just kept it inside of his house and never told anybody? No, you can't even go to the store here in Hartsville without people knowing about it. Right? They know exactly what you bought at the grocery store here in Hartsville. Okay? Do you think in a town of 1,500, one of the most prominent men in the city could have a son near death healed by someone speaking the word a town over and that word didn't spread? Do you think that that word didn't spread throughout that town? You better believe it spread. You better believe that everybody heard. Because it doesn't just say that he was very happy. It said he had come to believe. He had come to believe. And he begins to talk about his experience with Jesus. He begins to talk about what Jesus had done by speaking the word and his son being healed. A year later, a year later, Jesus is back in the town And here comes the centurion. He's heard this story. He knows what Jesus is capable of. He's heard what happened to the city official's son. And he says, I've got this servant, and he's hurting bad. And Jesus is like, let's go. He's like, no, 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 no. Just say it. Just say it. I know you can do it. 
Just say it. I believe. I know authority. You can speak it and it will be. And it says, Jesus marvels at this kind of faith. But friends, this kind of faith isn't just pop up out of nowhere. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God uses simple testimony to generate powerful results. City official tells the story. It is likely that the city official and the Roman centurion ran in the same circles. In a town of 1,500, these are leaders of the community. It's highly likely. It's not even highly likely. It's, it is most likely that the centurion knows the city official personally. He's heard the story. And he exhibits a powerful faith that causes even Jesus to marvel. What's the point in this? Why do I bring this up? God uses simple testimony to generate powerful results. You, friends, do not have to know every answer to every question that could be posed to you about the faith. You don't have to have every answer to every question that somebody might raise to you. You don't have to be an extrovert. You don't have to go into a sermon when you begin to give an account for what Jesus has done in your life. You know, somebody's like, hey, do you go to church somewhere? And you're like, okay. Um, see, there's Genesis and, right? And you're just like, right? And you feel like you've got to just like explain the Bible to them. No, 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 no. Friends, 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 listen. God uses simple testimony to generate powerful results. Do you have a, a story to tell about what Jesus has done in your life? Can you bear witness to his faithfulness? Can you bear witness to the forgiveness of sin that has come into your life? Can you bear witness to the fact that he comforts those in affliction, that he gives peace that passes understanding? Then you're capable. You don't have to be an extrovert. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have every answer to every question. You don't have to read 10 books a week or month or year. You don't even have to be able to read. You simply are faithful to tell the story of what Jesus has done for you. Think about this for a minute. You and I have much more to talk about than the city official ever dreamed of. I mean, it's amazing that Jesus spoke the word from a town over and his son was healed, but he knew nothing of the cross. He knew nothing of the resurrection. He knew nothing of forgiveness of sins to the worst of sinners. He experienced power, no doubt. But we've experienced more power. You see, his son would eventually die, but those who are forgiven of sin will live forever. We've had so much more done in our lives. We have seen such a greater demonstration of power, a debt paid by the blood of a spotless lamb. We have so much more that we can talk about if indeed we have experienced Christ. If we have experienced the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers us at the cross, if we have experienced his comforting love through our hurts, if we have experienced his, his, his peace in the midst of mourning or affliction in our life, then friends, we have more to talk about than the city official. The question is, is are we willing to open our mouths to tell the story of Jesus? 
Are we willing to talk about what he's done in our lives? We don't have to give every answer. We don't have to memorize every passage. We don't have to do that. But we must, at a minimum, tell what he's done for us. We must, at a minimum, be willing to talk about, if we indeed say it's the most important thing that's ever happened, we must be willing to talk about what happened when he said, your sins are forgiven. When he buried them and remembered them no more. When he called us son or daughter. When he said, you have an inheritance forever in my kingdom. We have to be able to talk about that. We have to be able to share. This is what it means to be a witness and to bear witness. Witnesses talk about what they've experienced. The reason it says we're called to be witnesses versus called to be historians or called to be scholars, but God bless, we need historians and scholars. I love reading them all. He doesn't say, I'm calling you to be scholars. He said, I'm calling you to be witnesses. And the only thing you can witness to is what? What you have experienced and witnessed. What you have, what you've seen. Have you seen any evidence of grace in your life? Then you can be a witness. And you're called to be just that, a witness. To bear witness to that grace. And listen, that's how Jesus builds his church. That's how Jesus builds his church. When people bear witness to his grace in their life. And as people hear your story about forgiveness that you've experienced, yes, even you, the sinner that you are, the comfort you've experienced, yes, through even that affliction, it is powerful when people hear and see the peace you have and see the love that you have experienced and known. Jesus uses these things to build his church. So can you be a part of Jesus building his church in this city? Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't need any letters beside your name. You need to be a witness. You need to tell the story of what God has done through Christ in you. Jesus says, I'm building my church. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to... Notice he doesn't say, I'm going I'm to give it my best shot to build my church. He says, I will build my church. I will do it. So Jesus is the builder. Praise be to God. He's the builder, and it's his church. It's his church. And, and because it's his, we can guarantee that he's going to do what he said he's going to do in building it. And watch, though, what he says, which is the most gratifying thing to hang on to. Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church, and what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know what that means? We are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. I, I hate to say this. Maybe you're way smarter than me. It's very possible. Um, it's very likely. Um, I used to hear that passage. You know what images would come to my mind? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I used to always think in my mind, for whatever reason, that the church is just kind of trying to withstand the assault of the enemy on us. That it's like, I, I'm, I'm not going to let the gates of hell prevail against you. And we're just like, okay, we're going to stand firm then, right? We're just trying to beat off the assault. That's not at all what that passage is saying. 
Are gates offensive weapons or defensive weapons? Are they offensive or defensive? Yes, they're defensive. They're not offensive. Nobody goes out on the battlefield with a gate, right? You don't drag your gate out with you like, you want some of this, right? No, gates are defensive. Gates are used to mark territory. Gates are used to set boundaries, to keep people out. Jesus actually says something mind-blowing. He says, I'm building my church in the gates of hell, those defense mechanisms of hell, those markers of territory that hell tries to set up will not stand against it. What's the it in that sentence? The church. The gates of hell have no shot. They're gonna get plowed over. The church is on a mission and witnesses are going out and we will see fruit because he's building it. It's his church, he's building it and the gates of hell have no chance. They have no chance. They can't stand. We're not fighting for a victory, we're fighting from victory. So this should encourage us, this should empower us to say, why would I not go? Why would I not go? It's not this maybe, maybe. Listen, no, no, no. We plant and we water and we trust that he's building his church. Did you know as a witness, it is not your responsibility to save anybody. God saves. We are called to go be faithful witnesses. You're not a savior. I'm a pitiful savior. And you don't make a good one either. They don't need you to be their savior. They need you to talk about the savior. They need you to point them to the savior. But let the savior do what saviors do, and that's save. Go be a witness. Go testify to the love of God. Go testify to the one who overcomes our sin. Go testify to the one who will reach into the deepest, darkest, ugliest places to attain his bride. Jesus never went to the good side of the tracks to get his bride, by the way. He went, to the, he went to the other side of the tracks to get his bride. He didn't go after the most lovely. That We're not the most lovely. He makes us lovely, though. It's, there's good news tonight, guys. You don't have to pre-qualify and size up those who need the gospel. They all need the gospel. They all need to hear the story of what Jesus has done. And you don't have to look at them and go, well, they, they kind of look like they've got their life together. If they're not in Christ, they don't. They're not in Christ, they don't. They may have a great mask on, and they may be carrying a facade, but they have deep need of that which they cannot provide for themselves. And that's forgiveness of sin. It's relationship with God. It's extended to all who believe. But how they believe unless they hear? How they hear unless someone tells them? And how will they be told if somebody's not sent to preach? How beautiful are the feet of those who carry good news? I don't have pretty feet. My feet are not pretty. They look like hobbit feet, actually. But if you carry the good news, those in heaven because of the good news that you have proclaimed, will say, how beautiful were your feet 
that brought that news to me. Oh, friends, you can be that to somebody. A faithful witness. You don't have to save them. You don't have to save them. I feel like we should put them on the speaker and just preach to them, let them hear. <laughs> let me give you some ideas. <laughs> let me give you some ideas here. Number one, be willing to speak what you know. Be willing to speak what you know. Be willing to speak about how Jesus has touched you. Second, learn to share your testimony. And, and here's how you can do that. Uh, practice saying it. Practice speaking it. And when you're driving in the car, instead of listening to classic rock or to talk radio, verbally share your testimony out loud. When you're in the shower, you know, soaping up and trying to not stink, share your testimony in the shower. Imagine conversations that you're having with coworkers and how it could open a door to share your story. And you don't have to like take 30 minutes to share your story. Every conversation about Jesus doesn't have to be a 30-minute conversation about Jesus. It can just be a faithful, small little seed that's planted. You know, I usually take those problems to the Lord, and I have found peace in that. That one sentence, God might use to wreck someone's day in the greatest way. Simply saying to somebody, you know, God is sovereign over this pain. And you can go to him. God can use that to disturb somebody's night. To not let them let go of that word. That's all you got to do is keep being faithful. Because so many times we can practice and be ready. Peter said, always be ready to give an account. He doesn't mean always be armed with a sermon to give. He's just saying be ready to talk about what Jesus has done. Open your eyes, open your, listen, open your ears, listen and look and watch and see. And then when the Spirit prompts you, act. Which, by the way, it's not your intellect that is counted upon. The Spirit will give you words to speak. The Spirit lives in you. This is not a fleshly effort. It's the Spirit of God in you. So learn to share your testimony. A third thing that you can do, which is so powerful, is pursue a close walk with God in your own life. And here's why I say that. The closer you're walking with God, engaging God in the scriptures and in prayer, seeking his face, cultivating that relationship, the closer your walk with God is, the more you'll desire for others to know it too. And the more sensitive to God's promptings you will be in those moments of conversation. And the more that your light will shine in darkness. One of the ways you can be a great witness is to actually walk closely with God. And then the fourth one, and it's important to state, commit to grow and learn. Commit to grow and learn. Notice I said you don't have to be this and you don't have to be that. And you don't. But let's never settle for not knowing. Let's never be okay with going, well, you know, I don't have to have answers to questions. Well, you don't have to. But a faithful witness would love to go, you know, I want to start learning more about how to answer this question. Can I, can I give you some assurance tonight? There's not a single question you will be answered in this lifetime that has not already been answered and addressed. No one's going to pop a question on you that's going to bring Christendom tumbling down. 
It doesn't exist. The questions have been dealt with for eons and eons. There's nothing new under the sun, friends. So you don't have to fear like, what if I get the question that blows it all up? You won't. There's so much out there for you in terms of resources that you can learn and grow so that if you do get hard questions, you can answer them. And by the way, can I just empower you tonight with this little phrase? In fact, I want you to practice it just to make sure you're good at it. Won't be hard to remember it, okay? I want you to look at your neighbor and say these words. I don't know. Say that. Let me make sure you got it. Say it to one more person. All right, now just take a big deep breath. Isn't that liberating to know you can say that? You could say, I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know, but I'll tell you what I'll do. Let me get back with you. Let, let, me, let me talk to somebody. Let me go read. Let me, I want to give you an answer. Let me find out. I don't know, but man, let's talk about this again. Right? Give me a month. I'll figure it out. Right? This is a beautiful opportunity for you to demonstrate humility. It's also an opportunity for you to say, let's have another conversation. But you can say, I don't know. Look, just because you don't know an answer doesn't mean you need to be like, uh, you, you see what happened was is the defibrillator and then... Don't, don't, don't do that, right? Be a witness. If you know answers, give answers. If you don't have them, say, I don't know, but seek to learn and grow. Let me close with this. I want you to think about this for me. I want you to let your mind and heart go back into a time and place in your life where you are ignorant of the grace of God. Or maybe you believed in God, but you had not experienced that lavish love that transforms your heart. Where maybe you knew about God, but you didn't know God. You weren't walking with Him. Would you go back and think about that time in your life? And here's what I want to remind you of tonight. Were it not for witnesses in your life, a parent, Sunday school teacher, a pastor, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker. If it wasn't for someone being a witness in your life, and maybe a series of someones being a witness in your life, you wouldn't know the grace you know tonight. Because faith comes by hearing. And hearing only happens through witnesses. And tonight, I just wonder who might be the people in your life that you need to be a witness to. There may be some names and people that rise immediately to the surface, but more than just thinking about a few people, I want you to begin to think about a lifestyle of being a witness. No matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, I'm a witness when I see the opportunity to be. I don't have to be on the square with a bullhorn. I don't have to carry a sign that says turn or burn. Okay? Right? You don't have to do that to be a faithful witness. Please don't do that to be a faithful witness. But we got to be willing to tell our stories. 
And we need to be sensitive to the Spirit's promptings for moments where we might plant that seed or water the seed that someone else has already planted by our faithfulness, by being faithful. Can you imagine with me for just a moment a church full of city officials talking about their experience with Jesus? Telling the story about what Jesus has done in our lives. Could you imagine a church full of people who got serious about that? Who said, God, open my mind, open my heart to be a faithful witness, to tell about what you have done for me, for my family, for my eternity. Can you imagine a church full of city officials telling their stories and witnessing about what Jesus has done? Can you just imagine with me for a moment how God might use that to turn a city full of Roman centurions to faith in Jesus. A city full of people who need to hear. And not just hear about in terms of abstract ideas, but to hear about it from people who have said, no, I've walked with Jesus. I've seen what he has done. This isn't a good idea. This is my life. I've seen this on display. I just have to imagine what God might do through a church who got serious about that. And it's my heart. It's my prayer. I know it's the prayer of the elders and leaders of this church that this would be that kind of church. That this city would be filled with churches full of witnesses that by the grace of God, this would no longer be the most unchurched county in the state of Tennessee, that we would not see 90% divorce rates, that we would not see people perishing in their sins, dying of thirst in reach of water, starving for the bread of life, yet dying hungry. Church, let's not be okay with it. Let's draw a line in the sand and let's let these three days be that line in the sand to say, Lord, you are building your church and we want to be there with you. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. Whatever territory Satan wanted to mark in this community, we know those gates don't have a chance against your church. The Spirit is within us. We have an amazing story to tell of grace. So let's go and plant the seeds and water those seeds and pray and pray and plead and beg that God would bring the growth. Amen? And I believe he does and I believe he can and I believe that he will. Let's pray. Lord, what a good and gracious father you are. You have loved us when we are most unlovable. You have demonstrated such kindness to us when we had done nothing to earn or deserve it. Oh, Father, I pray that the reality of brokenness and lostness in our communities would wreck us. That we would just not be able to shake it. 
that we couldn't just move on from it, that we couldn't get over it, that we can't go back to business as usual. We can't just go about our way any longer. This requires a work of your spirit in our hearts. It requires coming to you and letting you allow for our hearts to match yours. But Lord, our brokenness over the reality of lostness is not where it stops. It doesn't stop there. It starts there. And it leads us to want to go pick up the message of saving grace, sovereign grace, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners and he was raised from the dead, showing that he indeed was fully God and fully man, vindicating his claims of being the Son of God, showing that he indeed crucified sin and exhausted your wrath on himself, proving that the wages of sin being death had been canceled. that we would take that message and how we have personally have experienced it. Whether you saved us from our religiousness or whether you saved us from our licentiousness, whether you saved us from a world of drug and alcoholism or whether you saved us from our own good behavior, our own self-righteous attempts to make ourselves right with you. We have a story we have a story to tell if indeed we've experienced Christ. So God, I pray for this church. I pray for its leaders. I pray for its members. I pray for this community and the churches gathered that you would set a fire, that you would embolden them as witnesses, that you would remind us of the urgency needed for the hour for Christ is coming soon. People are perishing daily. May we move and live and step with you. Telling the good news of the salvation that Christ alone can bring. Have your way in us. Have your way in me. That's what we pray. That's what we ask for. Have your way in me. Use me to be your witness, to be faithful. Yes, God, we ask it. We want it. We need it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing tonight our praises. Let's, let's make our praises a prayer to be faithful witnesses, to be lovers of God in light of what He has done for us. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how elated that city official was because of what Jesus had done for His Son? Friends, is there any joy permeating our life for what He has done in us? Do we not have all the reason in the world? to tell the good news. Let's sing as a response of our joy, as a cry of our heart's affections for what Jesus has done in us, the most undeserving, 
Who here can say, well, yeah, I mean, I kind of get why he saved me. Nobody. Nobody. It's pure grace. What a Savior. Let's give him our praise. Amen? Amen. Amen.